We all love hearing stories of people who go from rags to riches. We love to hear stories about how men and women go from ruin to redemption. One of those is a person by the name of Do Wan Chang. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a famous face behind Forever 21. I'm sure many of you have been to a Forever 21 store. But prior to him establishing this behemoth of a business, he had migrated from South Korea to the United States in 1981, and he had to work three jobs simultaneously as a gas station clerk, as a janitor, and as a coffee shop employee just to make his ends meet and to support his family. He worked those three jobs for at least three years before he founded the company and opened his first clothing store in 1984. And Forever 21 is now a multinational corporation with more than 480 locations around the world, managing to bring in more than $3 billion a year in profits. Another person I'm sure many of you have never heard of is a person by the name of Leonardo De Vecchio. De Vecchio grew up in an orphanage, and as one of five children, his widowed mother was unable to care for him, and so she offered him up into an orphanage. He had to work at a very young age and worked at a factory where he lost part of his fingers. He worked at a factory making molds of auto parts and eyeglass frames. At the age of 23, De Vecchio opened his own molding shop, which expanded to become the world's largest maker of sunglasses and prescription eyewear, including brands that you wear, known as Ray-Ban and Oakley. For those of you who love music, you know Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran was a struggling artist. He had almost no more money as he jumped from bar to bar and clubs to clubs trying to make it big. It was in a chance meeting that Jamie Foxx, the movie star, saw one of his performances at a small bar. And there, Jamie invited Ed to sleep on his couch for six weeks, which Ed did. And Jamie Foxx got him a gig at the Apollo Theater in New York. And if you don't know, the Apollo Theater uh, is a mostly black theater. So having white musicians play at that venue is uncommon. But Ed Sheeran goes on stage with a ukulele in front of a full crowd and performed. He got a standing ovation. There was a call for an encore, which he did. And the rest, as they say, is history. And for those of us who are younger, we all know Robert Downey Jr., he is Iron Man. And yet, if you knew his life a little bit earlier, he was a druggie. He had been a Hollywood star in his early 20s, earning an Oscar nomination for the movie Chaplin. But because of drugs, uh, his career spiraled downward. He was arrested for possession of cocaine and heroin. He hit rock bottom when he was sentenced to three years in the California State Penitentiary for drug use. He was so frustrated with his life that in 2003, it was reported that he pulled up to a Burger King on the Pacific Coast and threw all of his drugs away, swearing to redeem himself. It was then five years later that he decided to audition at a production for Marvel Studios, and he got the lead role for Iron Man. And that is how they say history is made. We love stories like that. We love rags to riches stories. We love stories of redemption. We love stories that end well. And we love stories like this because it 
shows us the triumph of the human will. It's the notion that if you work hard enough, if you catch some lucky breaks, if you work hard, if you're persevering, then from ruin you will find riches, restoration, and redemption. However, there is fallacy in that notion because it is completely centered on man. It is a humanistic philosophy that is not taught in scriptures. The real reason why there are stories of rags to riches and from ruin to redemption is because God is involved, whether He is acknowledged or not by the person who is redeemed and restored, God is involved. And the reason God desires for people who have ruined their lives to be restored and redeemed is because of the way He looks upon each one of us, those whom He has created in the Imago Dei, in His image. What is the real reason that we go from ruin to redemption? It is because of God's mercy and grace, because of how He looks upon us. And such an important lesson that God wants us to understand that Jesus gives This lesson in a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We're going to study verses 11 to 32. Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. As we take a look at what is considered the most beloved of parables, the most well-known, the story of the return of the prodigal son. And from this parable, we want to look from God's eyes at how He looks at men and women who have wasted their life in ruin. Now, to make sure you don't miss the details of this story, the Father represented in the story is God the Father. The older and the younger children are those who are His children, followers of His, both the younger and the older. And so Jesus begins the story in verse 11. Look with me as I read. And Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeying to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The first part of this story tells us of a young man who ruined his life through his own self-destructive action. What was this action specifically? It was when he spent all of his possessions in reckless living. He didn't save anything. He didn't plan ahead. He just wanted to live the good life. And for us to think, how in the world can someone spiral out of control and live such self-destructive life, you don't have to look any further than the movie stars and the sports stars that we so idolize today. How do people lose so much money when they have so much of it? It happens. I don't know if you know the story of Kenny Anderson, an NBA all-star who earned over $60 million in a 14-year NBA career. And yet he winds up in bankruptcy in 2005. Well, he does so because he purchased eight cars and then a Beverly Hills estate for starters. Then he gets himself married three times and divorced three times. Fathers seven children and that he needs to pay child support for them. And then he loses a court challenge to a prenuptial agreement with his first wife who then takes half of his assets. And as an extra gut punch after winning in court, his first wife... Tammy Akbar buys a brand new sports car and puts as her license plate the words, his cash. Antoine Walker, another one of these individuals, a three-time NBA All-Star, 
an NCAA NBA champion, earned just north of $108 million over the course of his 13-year NBA career. Can you even think about being able to spend $108 million? And yet, his financial decisions were questionable at best. This six-foot-nine baller reportedly never wore the same designer suit twice. He was lending family and friends financial support as they were probably milking him out of it to over 70 different friends. In 2009, Walker was arrested for writing $1 million worth of bad checks to Las Vegas casinos and later in 2010 filed for bankruptcy. He lost $108 million. This is exactly what happens to this younger son who asks his father for half of his inheritance. Now let me ask you a question at this moment. Would you fault the father for being foolish? For giving half of his money to his youngest son? Who I'm sure the father knew would live a reckless life. And would you say that the son was wrong for asking his share of the inheritance? I know we read our culture into the parable story. I know that we know the ending of this parable, and so we read it into the story. But when Jesus tells it, and you look at it from unbiased eyes, the answer has to be no. The story doesn't condemn the action of the son and the father. If it was wrong for the father to give his inheritance to the son before he died, then the father wouldn't have given it to the son. And yet the father was still alive and was able to make his own decisions And he chose to give his younger son that which he would have given to him anyways when he died. And the son had the audacity to ask for it. And because the father loved the son, he gave the younger son what he asked for. You may question the wisdom of these two individuals. And yet this is exactly the picture of how the heavenly father interacts with us. The Heavenly Father gives us what we want oftentimes when we ask for it. Even though at times His sovereignty already knows the destructive things we will do with what we get. And yet He gives it to us because we demand from Him freedom. Let us live our own lives, God. I can do it on my own. And so as crazy as we are, He grants us this wish and listen carefully that which god has given to us we are responsible for it we are to be stewards of it you know we ask from god all the time lord give me give me give me give me give me more give me more give me more be careful if you ask god for more and he gives it to you that more which he gives you you are to be responsible for it and you will be called to account for it one day That's what we talked about last week in the parable of the talents. That which God has given us, His children, is that which we are to properly steward and that which we will be called to account when He returns. But look what this young man does as he ruins his life through reckless living, verse 14 and 15. But when he had spent it all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. 
And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. This second son spent everything in reckless living and didn't plan ahead and for contingencies. And the Bible tells us in this story there was a severe famine in the land, and so he became a need. You know, there are many people who can survive famines, the most famous being Joseph of old, who saved an entire country and the surrounding region because he was prudent and he saved enough for when that time came. But this younger son didn't in his reckless living. He ruined his life because of unpreparedness. And the Bible tells us he became very hungry. There was no food around. And so he went and took the only job that was available to him, which was to feed pigs in the sty, in the pen. Look how far he has fallen from the son of a very wealthy man, living the good life, to now feeding pigs. But he sunk much deeper. Look at verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. As he's watching the pigs eat their food, he was in such desperate hunger that he longed to eat the pigs' food, and yet he was not even given their food to eat. You know you've hit rock bottom, the rock bottom of having a life that was ruined when you crave animal food, and you still can't even eat animal food. Now, let me ask you a question at this point. Should you feel sorry for this young man? Should you feel sorry for this young man? Some of you who have very kind hearts would feel bad for him and would want to help him. But it is implied from this story that we shouldn't show compassion to him. Look what the last phrase of verse 16 says. And no one gave him anything. You know, there are people who fall upon hard times. They made one or two bad decisions, circumstances allow their life to be such, and we show compassion to them. They're hard up, and so we want to help them. We're all compassionate to an extent. And yet, the people that surround this young man didn't show him any compassion. Perhaps they all believe that he doesn't need to be shown compassion. He must have been a terrible person. They didn't give him anything. The way he lived his life, perhaps he was arrogant, perhaps he was boastful, we don't know. But the way he lived his life does not deserve any compassion from anyone. He is craving food for the pigs. And yet, they wouldn't give him food for the pigs. This is a man who has entered into his ruin through his own self-destructive actions, wasting possessions and not preparing for life but it is in this state that he finally comes to his senses look at look with me at verses 17 to 19 but when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair and i perish with hunger i will arise and go to my father and will say to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you and i'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired servants. The son finally comes to his senses, realizes how good he had it. My father's servants eat better than even me today. But the son realizes 
that he has no more claim to his father's kindness, goodness, and estate. Why? Because he already asked for that which would be his. But he's ready to ask for forgiveness. Ask the father to hire him as a servant. I want you to understand this. Here is a man who does not believe, finally, that he's entitled to anything. The story could have gone well. He's my father. I'm entitled to something as his son. No. He said, I will come crawling to my father, and I will ask him, like anyone else, to hire me as his servant so that I won't starve. He has no more claim to his father's kindness, goodness, and estate. But it is in that state that he finally got it right. I wonder how many of us have ever reached that state of rock-bottom resolve where we finally admit to God, God, you don't owe us a thing. Would you be gracious to extend your mercy towards us? How many of you really believe that? How many of you would ever allow your children to get to that point of their life where they are in such desperation at the rock bottom place where they need to be, where they finally realize the truth and come to their senses? You see, that's the problem today of a lot of parenting, especially in the Asian community. This parable is a great wake-up call for parents and relatives and friends who try to overprotect their children, who come to the rescue every time they fail. They are never allowed to feel the full force of the consequences of their actions. And yes, I know about a parent's love. I know about the love between friends. But then we sulk and we wonder and we're frustrated. Why does my child never learn? Why does my friend never learn? They never learn the consequences of their own actions because they've never hit rock bottom and they've never come to their senses. You see, sometimes God allows it and sometimes we have to allow God to allow it for people that we love, perhaps even ourselves, to get to that point in our lives where we finally wake up and realize the truth about the fact that we are nothing apart from God and His grace. But you know, my friends, this doesn't only deal with lifestyle problems. It also deals with matters of faith. Often, especially in the church, we don't allow our young people, we don't allow each of us the benefit of struggling and wrestling with our faith. When someone says, I doubt these aspects of God, we shun them and we criticize them and we say, have more faith. We don't allow in the safety of the church men and women to question the Christian faith, to struggle with it. And yet, what better a place for one to struggle through their faith than in the church versus doing so in an outside environment where they are antagonistic to the world. I've been teaching high school Bible classes since 2002. It's one of the things I enjoy. People ask me, why don't you have a break on Mondays? I don't. I spend my time at the school doing schoolwork, and I love it. And I love teaching. 
In these 17 years, if you have gone through my class, I know that the first few weeks are a challenge because I ask my students questions that make them look foolish, make them look dumb, actually. And you may think, what a terrible teacher. You're supposed to encourage your students, not make them look foolish. But many of them have grown up in a Christian school and in a Christian environment, and they think they have all the right answers. But I want all of us to be put in a place where we struggle with the tough questions of faith, because these are the questions that the world will challenge you with. And unless you get to a point where you realize you have to learn, then you're never going to be able to tackle the questions of the world. And if there's no struggle with one's faith, then you will never personally own your faith. That's why so many young people who grow up in the church leave the church when they go to college. And if parents are scared that they cannot answer the deep questions of faith, maybe you and I need to grow deeper into the Word so that we can answer the questions that our children ask. Because if you can't answer it, they're going to wonder, why do you drag me to church? You see, the world will ask questions about our faith. And we come to a point of humility saying, Lord, we don't understand. Help us to learn again. How would you answer the question regarding same-sex marriage? Most of our answers would be, well, well the Bible says so. Well, 75% of the world doesn't believe the Bible. How then would you be able to explain and answer this question from a Christian worldview? What is your position with regards to abortion? We'd all say, of course, that is the taking of life. What about in the case of rape and incest, which was the question I was asked this week? What is your position on that? You see... Sometimes we all need to go through that struggle of hitting rock bottom before we humble ourselves enough to actually learn the lessons and come to our senses. When we hit the rock bottom of our Christian faith walk and our intellectual walk, then we begin to learn. It is the case now, it was the case for this young man in this story. He realizes in humility that he had it good and how stupid of him to want to march to his own path and give up all the good things he had. Even my father's servants eat better than me now. So look what happens in verse 20. And the younger son arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The younger son journeyed back home and he wanted to ask for his father's forgiveness, to ask his father not to take him back as a son, but to hire him as one of his servants. But from a far off distance, the father happened to see him and ran to embrace and kiss his wayward son. Let me ask you a question. Was the father looking for the son every day? as some stories and Bible videos portray? There the father longingly is looking for his son. Well, the Bible passage doesn't seem to indicate that the father was looking out for him every day. Because if it was so, if he so desired to search for his son, wouldn't he have sent his servants 
to go search for his son? Wouldn't he have used all means by which to go pursue the son and win him back? But the way the father is portrayed in the parable, the father is resigned to the fact that his son has now gone his own way. He has one half of the family wealth. He will now embark on his own life. You see, this is also a picture of the heavenly father. Our Lord gives us the freedom to live our lives. And yet to live it in such a way that we must accept the consequences of it. His heart breaks for us when we leave him. His heart is sad. But he lovingly allows us to live our lives. So if the father is resigned to the fact that the son has left, what is this compassion that verse 20 speaks of? When the father happens to catch a glimpse of his son, his heart, the Bible says, is filled with compassion. What would the father have need to be compassionate for his son over? Did you ever think about this? I know we know the story. But let's look at the story afresh. Has the son and the father met? No. At this point of the story, the father and the son have not met. The son could be coming and saying, hey, dad, guess what? I doubled our family inheritance, right? That was the parable from last week. The father doesn't know that this son is eating or wanting to eat pig food. He doesn't know this. The father doesn't actually know his son is in need. So what compassion is this? This is a compassion, I believe, to forgive what the son has done when the son pridefully asked for his money. It was not necessarily the compassion because he felt sorry for his son at his present condition because they haven't met yet. The son hasn't explained what has happened. The compassion in forgiveness for a son that wanted to live independently from the father. That's so much like us today. We all want to live independently from the Father. And yet, what we see is that the Father already forgave the Son in his heart, even before the Son told the Father what he had done. Why am I stressing this point? Because I want you to understand something, number one, if you're taking notes. The reason why God allows ruined lives to be redeemed, number one, is because of his compassion evidenced in forgiveness. God's compassion evidenced in forgiveness. God brings us from ruin to redemption, not because of anything we did, but because He already forgave us as His child because of His compassion. Remember, Jesus Christ died for us before even we were born, and He has loved us with an everlasting love. Maybe this illustration will bring this point much clearer. Let's say your child, if you have children, come up to you and they ask you, Mom or Dad, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Or a niece and nephew comes up to their uncle or aunt, Uncle or Auntie, I'm, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? What would be your reply? What would be your answer? I know what mine would be. What did you do? What did you do? 
It's as if we need to think. You tell me what you did, and I'm going to think whether I want to forgive you or not. What should be the correct answer when your child comes up to you and says, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You know what your answer should be? Yes, you are forgiven. And I know it will burn in your heart. What did he do? What did he do? What did she do? But it shouldn't matter. Isn't that the truth? It shouldn't matter what that child did. Because when that child asks for forgiveness, the proper response is, yes, you are forgiven. And yet, here we are, often asking, what did you do? Let me think about whether I want to forgive you or not. Or a husband coming up to his wife, honey, I'm so sorry, forgive me. And we think the worst, what did you do? But God says, I will forgive you before you even tell me what you did. The shed blood of Jesus Christ saves us from sins in the past, in the present, and in the future. That's why we hold to that wonderful theological truth, once saved, always saved. We can never outrun the love of God, Romans chapter 8 tells us. There is no sin that will cause God to stop loving us. If you have a notion as was shared in a testimony yesterday by one of the candidates for baptism, that they thought that they had sinned in their life and God could no longer forgive them. Remember, just like the father in this story, before the son even told the father what he did, the father's heart already forgave him. Verse 21 to 24. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Well, they finally talk and the wayward younger son begins his prepared I'm sorry speech. And he gets to the part where he's not worthy to be called the father's son. And essentially the father stops him. It's as if the father ignores his speech and says, There is no such a thing. You not being my son. You are always my child. You will always be my child. And he shows it through action. That this younger wayward son can never not be his child. The father instructs that the son is clothed with the best of robes. He is given shoes to wear. He is given, given a ring, perhaps a signet ring, to signify he was a member of the family. And then the father instructed that the fatted cow, reserved for very special occasions, was to be killed and prepared, and prepared for a welcome home feast for his wayward son. Now, why would the father do this? Look at verse 24. We may miss this phrase. He is explaining to the servant why. For this, my son. That's the emphasis. That's the subject in that sentence. I know we don't like grammar, but that's the subject. That's the main subject. This, my son, dead now alive, lost now found. But the focus is on the first phrase. This is my son. This is the reason I do all of this, because this is my child. 
You see, the Heavenly Father, our God, has always wanted the best for us, not because we deserve it, but simply because we are His children. It's as plain as simple as that. It's we who, as adults, have messed up this concept, made more difficult this concept. God loves you. God desires the best for your life simply because you are His child. And that's our second principle, number two. God provides and enables lives of ruin to become lives that are restored and redeemed because, number two, you are His child. We are His children. Even when He disciplines us, it is for our good. Even when He corrects us, it is so that we can be better. God loves us. And let us never question that. I don't know about you, but did you ever, ever remember complaining to your parents when you and a group of friends do something bad, why your parents only scold you and they don't reprimand the other kids? You know my story. I was the black sheep of the family. I led a gang in the church, yes. Our gang made up of deacons' kids and pastors' kids and elders' kids. And we terrorized the church. We almost burned it down. That's another story for another time. But my parents would reprimand me. And sometimes I wouldn't like it. And I'd say, well, why don't you go reprimand the other kids? We all did it together. You're the pastor. You have that right. And their response to me, You're my child. They're not my children. They have their own parents to discipline them. And I say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. We should all get reprimanded together. And I'd argue with them. And in my heart, I was angry. I said, no, it's always not fair. You're always picking on me. You're always always reprimanding me, correcting me. What about the others? You see, it's... Until you yourself become a parent and you grow up and you begin to understand that the reason your parents will put in the time to argue with you and to discipline you and put in the mental energy to put up with your rebukes and your debates is because they love you. And they want to drill into your knucklehead, which I had, and the hard-headedness that These things are to help you become a better person that is Christ-like. But I always, in my mind, thought it's because they don't love me that they're so hard on me. Oh, the love of a parent is very complex. We don't understand it fully. And we do the same with God. We don't understand why God deals with us in certain ways. He doesn't answer our prayers. We ask Him to give us things He doesn't. He corrects us. And yet we always forget that He loves us. And the only reason He's going to do that, the Scriptures are very clear, is because we are His children. God corrects us in love because we are His children. Others who are not His children, He just lets them live their life to their own destruction. 
But the love of parents is very complex, and unless, like I said, you become one, you never fully understand. You know, I don't like to share food. I love food so much. In fact, I love being married because at a restaurant, you can order not only one dish, but you can order two dishes, which are two dishes you like, but you say, well, my wife will order that one. But now as I have two boys who are getting bigger and uh, they are teenagers, uh, one of our biggest expenses now, the food bill. And uh, there are times when uh, as I relax, I will open up a bag of potato chips and it's like there's a silent alarm. They all just suddenly appear in my room. (laughs) And for years, I can enjoy this bag of potato chips all by myself. And you know how it is. One half of it is just air anyways. And then they'll come, oh, Dad, what are you eating? Some chips. And you just look at their eyes. They're longing for it. Can we have some? Ugh. I don't want to share. This is mine. Get your own. Oh, wait, they don't have any money. But deep down inside, as a parent, you, you love them. And you know you've got to share and You do things that are intrinsically not natural to you, and so you offer them, here, would you like some chips? And by the time it goes to two of the boys, and the little girl comes in, and she gets some, I look, and there's like three pieces left. (laughs) I want it. I want that last piece of chicken leg. I want that last piece of pie. I want that last dumpling. But because I love them, I, I let them have it. They didn't even ask me if I want it. They just grab it. And then they say silly comments like, oh, dad, you must not be very hungry. You're not eating it. No, they don't understand. They don't understand that because I love them, I give it to them. You see, that's the complexities. Here we are. We question the love of the heavenly father. We forget that we are his children. We call him father. And we have this notion that somehow when he does certain things, it's because he doesn't care or he doesn't love. My friends, He loves us unconditionally. He loves dispensing with things we don't deserve. We call it grace because we are His children. The father in the story tells all of his servants, my son has returned. Verse 25 to 28. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound your father has killed the fatted cow but the older son was angry and would not go in therefore his father came out and pleaded with him verse 29 so he answered and said to his father lo these many years I've been serving you I've never transgressed your commandment at any time And yet you've never given me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Oh, if only the story ended in verse 24, but it doesn't. There's another person to contend with, the older brother. And he wonders what all the music and the dancing was about. And he's told by one of the servants that his younger brother had returned and father drew a, a, threw a party for him. Oh, the son was angry. 
he would not join the party even with his father's pleading. And what was his reason? Verse 29. The reason I'm angry, Dad, is because I've been the good son. I've always obeyed. And yet you never threw me this type of celebration. But my younger brother, he spent half of the family fortune, his half, with prostitutes. And yet you throw him a party. Let me stop here. Let me ask you something. Was the older brother wrong in thinking this? Was he? Poor older brother. In countless sermons I've heard about the prodigal son, the older brother has always been vilified. He's the bad guy in the story for thinking such thoughts. And yet, I don't think he is. There is one bad guy in the story, and that's the younger son. But notice in the parable that he is not condemned for what he is thinking. In fact, it can be said that his feeling is appropriate. His feeling is normal. And considering the fact, he's even right. In fact, there are a lot of Christians this morning who feel the same way like the older brother. I I totally identify with the older brother. Here I am. I do everything right by faithfully following the commands of God. I come to church every Sunday without missing a beat. And yet it's the druggie who turns good guy whose life is celebrated. I'm never featured. I, I've never been asked to share my testimony. They always want the testimony of the killer turned saint. And yet here I am, the good person, the faithful person who teaches Sunday school every week, trying to live my life to the best of my ability with the help of the Holy Spirit to live a Christ-like life. Here I am trying to follow the precepts of God and no one cares to hear my story. Do you identify with that? Look at the words of the father. Verse 31. The father said to the older brother, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. But it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The father says very clearly in verse 31, All that I have is yours. The younger son isn't getting any more things from him. And that's what we talked about last week. If you missed the sermon last week, it is an important sermon. I hope you'll go online and listen to it. It will make more sense as we talk about this one. You see, last week I talked about the fact that when everyone gets to heaven, the rewards will not be the same. Yes, Everyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will go to heaven, but the rewards are not the same. This is echoed here in this parable. You, older son, you will be rewarded for being faithful. You have everything that I have. You will get more rewards than this younger brother of yours. But the main emphasis is a picture into the father's heart. Why did he throw the party? We do so, he tells his older son, because we rejoice for your brother was lost. Lost in his ways, not geographically. Lost and has now been found. Spiritually lost, but has returned. Spiritually dead in the world, but now made alive. This is the heart of God. You see, God loves to to ensure that ruined lives are redeemed and restored because number three... God's joy is in the lost returning. God's joy is in the lost returning. 
That's why the Bible tells us all heaven rejoices when one soul comes to know Christ. So if you're like the older son, rejoice when someone comes to know Jesus Christ. Let their story be told, but don't you worry. You will get more rewards in heaven than them because you have worked more faithfully to live out what God has asked you to live out through the years. And so I love hearing the stories of lives transformed, but I don't get jealous or envious. I don't envy their press coverage because I know that if I'm faithful and have been obedient, then my reward will be greater than theirs. That is why there is no need to compare. The heart of the Father is to love both sons. The heart of the Father is to love both sons. The emphasis of this parable is talking about the heart of the Father to embrace a wayward son, one who was lost but now is found. And yet there are other scriptures in the Bible that talk about how God loves when a faithful man or woman lives their life faithfully until the day they see him. And that was the parable last week. Or you look at a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, which talks about the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, when we who have been living faithfully will be celebrated for the life that we have lived. The heart of the Father is to love both sons. In fact, there's a bit of two celebrations happening. The celebration of the older son's obedience and the celebration of the younger son's return. God's joy is in the lost returning. That is the emphasis of this parable. But God's joy is also found in faithful lives lived. So I'm glad that the Bible puts the perspective of the older son because that's how most of us are. You don't have to live a crazy, wayward life to have an amazing testimony to share. Your testimony of a life faithfully lived for Jesus is one of the greatest testimonies ever. The love of the Father is to both. And so there are us, there are some this morning who are ruining our lives through reckless living and the unpreparedness of this life and the next. Remember, come to your senses. Don't wait until God disciplines you and brings you to rock bottom when then you will come to your senses to understand that God provides redemption because His compassion is evidenced in His forgiveness. Remember that His redemption is always there, ready for you because you are His child. And God's great joy is in seeing the lost return to Him. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life this morning. Are you lost? Return to God. He is waiting for you with open arms. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful parable that gives us a glimpse into your heart. It makes me feel even more unworthy of your unconditional love. And yet so many times, all of us, including myself, are like this younger son, telling you, give me what I am owed. You don't bother me, Lord. I'm going to live my life the way I want it. 
And then we come crawling back to you when we've messed it up, Lord. You know it. And thank you, Lord, for always receiving us back. Thank you that when we ask you to forgive us, you don't say, first of all, what have you done? You remind us that we are already forgiven, redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May the truths of this story encourage us and challenge us to live a life for you this week and until we see you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.